Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago, and joined today by Rob Hunt, who is back from the wilds of Europe skiing and uh, generally taking a little bit of time off, and we're happy to have Rob back. Uh, when he's back, he does his gig with uh, Lene Holdings out of San Diego. And Rob, welcome back. Great to have you, man. Thanks, Larry. It's good to be back. It's been a little while. It has. So we'll catch up with you in a minute, but it's a good day for you to be back. Uh, we're going to dive right into the music here, and uh, we're, we're doing a little Bob Dylan today. Dan, can you roll that first one for us? Yes, folks, you're not losing your minds. That is trucking. That is Bob Dylan bringing it to you live from uh, April 12th, 2023 from the Tokyo Garden Theater in Tokyo, Japan. It turns out Bob went to Japan and decided to play some Grateful Dead. Uh, we mentioned it really briefly last week, but uh, uh, with a little bit of uh, prep time, decided let's dive into this and uh, uh, hear exactly what Bob is like doing it. And, and you'll find out we've got uh, a number of tunes from the uh, Japan tour that we're going to play. And a couple of earlier versions of some other dead tunes that Dylan covered. Uh, but Rob, great day to have you back. Always love your interpretation on these things. Uh, not sure what really uh, you know triggered Dylan to play it here, but thank God he's diving into some Grateful Dead. Yeah, and you know, much like Bob Weir, it seems like Dylan can't remember the words of trucking any better than Bobby can. Uh, <laughs> re- relatively funny that you know he comes right out of the gate, gets the first word right, and then kind of you know Dylan's his way through the uh, the rest of the first verse. But, uh, but if you listen to the whole thing, he, he gets about half of it, right? I'll give him credit for giving it a shot. Yeah, absolutely. He does, you know, like anything else, you know, Dylan was always kind of a mumbler and, you know, he mumbles his way through that. And obviously this is very recent. So we're getting Bob at his mumbliest. Um, but I just love the spirit, you know, and the, and the, the playing and all of a sudden they dive into it and, uh, uh and, you know, he, he's great. You know, he, 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 um, he wrote that book a few years ago about uh, a few years ago about all the different his top 66 songs or 66 songs he wanted to comment on and uh, it, it was really impressive to me because he he focused on some dead stuff and he focused on uh you know talking about a song like trucking and how it's just a song that speaks to everybody and uh you know i, I think people are just impressed when bob notices their songs yeah, I agree. And I think it's so funny because, you know, you always think of the Grateful Dead, um, Garcia especially, covering Dylan for so long. That's nice to see uh, Dylan going the other way. And it wasn't just, you know, trucking. It was a handful of tunes. And as of yesterday, I think he played, a, um, or a couple of days ago, played a, a Bobby tune. Like, not even the Grateful Dead tune, but, you know, straight Bobby tune. So that's uh, 
little a little bit different. And certainly, you know, you never think of Dylan needing to play anyone else's songs because his own catalog is so uh, so robust. Exactly. Uh, the philosophy of modern song is is the, the title that I was stumbling for there a second ago, and it does talk about sixty six different songs that he randomly picked, and one of them is Truckin. Uh, it came out last year, and uh, I just like to buy anything that Dylan does. I bought the book of his lyrics just because I think it's so fascinating to to read what this guy has to say about anything. Um, and, you know, I mean, he is recognized, I suppose, as, uh, you know, a reverential figure in, in rock and roll history, going from acoustic to electric at Newport a few years ago and uh, all sorts of other stuff like that. And yeah, it, it, it's got to be flattering. And we'll get to that Bobby tune in a minute because uh, that was fun. But this was the first time that ever that Dylan ever played Truckin' Live. Um, and some of these other songs we're going to play, he's kind of he kind of has a history with them. Uh, but he had never he had never attempted trucking before this. And, you know, for a first effort for a guy like Dylan, I, you know, I, I'd say he's OK. I'd give him a B or a B plus. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, half the time Dylan can't remember the words to his own tunes these days. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's never been known for uh, for his amazing ability to recall songs. So I think much like we're the more complicated the song, the better he remembers the lyrics. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he, it's great to hear him play him. It is. And, uh, you know, he dives into all of this stuff and, and we'll get to more of it in a second. Uh, we've got a few more, as I say, songs from the, uh, the tour of Japan and then uh, a couple of others just because it's, it's fun to listen to, uh, to Dylan do this. But um, we got to dive into some big grateful news here, my friend. And once again, it's always nice to have you back to have somebody to bounce this around with. But I think a lot of us were really surprised the other day, first concerned and then surprised to see uh, the headline coming from a number of different sources that Bill Kreutzmann will not be joining Dead & Company on this final tour. And I don't know about you, but of course, my immediate thought was, oh my God, this guy must really be sick again. Because last year, even when he was sick, he made every effort to be there. And imagine all of our surprises when when we see the statement put out by Bob, Mickey, and John Mayer writing that the decision reflected a shift in creative direction. The tour is proceeding with Kreutzmann's full support. And Kreutzmann's quote was, I have a lot of music left in me and there's no stopping me from playing it. I've never wanted to obey orders or, or play by the rules, but in the interest of longevity, I hope you'll understand. So what's going on here, man? Kreutzmann's, he's been there forever. Mickey left and came back and everybody else, but Kreutzmann's been a pillar of anything Grateful Dead for 50 plus years now. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing. And look, when I read the, uh, the quote, I read the same way you did, which was, this is not health related. You know, Kreutzmann's had some on and off again uh, health issues and those have been pretty well publicized. He's always had Jay Lane kind of as a stand-in ready to go at any time. But in, in this case, it, it almost sounds like there's some creative differences about where they wanted to take the band. And, you know, the thing I don't understand about this is it's the final tour. This is it. You know, like you can't figure it out and just stick it out for, you know, just a, a, another month or two. Uh, and, and I'm not sure if that also includes him not playing the uh, the Cornell uh, redo in in, uh, in May, right? But uh, but right. I mean, this, it, it sounded like kind of like an effective immediately uh, statement. So uh, hard to say what's happening here. I mean, perhaps it's just that he the touring schedule is too much, and his health is fine, but he just didn't want to go out on the road. But perhaps it's something more, and there's a personality issue. I mean, look, we we don't know, and I'm not going to pretend to guess. Uh, it just, you know, makes it that much more difficult to, to say, okay, you know, like it, it, it almost feels like the last show that Dead & Co. played really is kind of the last show, you know, like without, without Kreutzmann there, you're down to, you're down to two, you know, it's, that's, uh, that, that ain't the same, you know, it's, 
It's Certainly. not the same. The uh, terrible two is not like the core four or the, you know, whatever you want to call them three. But uh, and, and then we are being we're, of course, his his response on Twitter was, well, it looks like that's it for this outfit. But don't worry, we will be out there in one form or another until we drop, you know, like leave it to Bobby to just sum it all up very succinctly. Yep, this one's done. We'll figure it out going forward. And I, I'm I'm very curious to see if are they, are they going to bring Jay Lane in is the idea that Mickey's going to be the the sole percussionist? Are they going to go call? Right no, they'll, they'll be a second one. Yeah. They've already said that they're looking for who's going to fill, um, fill Billy's spot. Uh, so we'll see, but you know, I, I would expect the natural you know, fill in would be Jay. If Jay doesn't already have, you know, other, um, other obligations, but if he doesn't, you know, I'd, I'd certainly expect to see him at least on you know part of this tour. You mean, you can, Joe Russo could sit in. I mean, all sorts of guys could sit in and, and do it, I suppose. But, uh, and, and I don't know about you, but it's like when, when they talk about the core four or whatever, of them are left. I love Bill Kreisman. I love Mickey Hart, and I I know that I'm I'm not a, enough of a student of of the drums and percussion if I say this. But at the end of the day, you know, replacing Jerry, Bobby, Phil is a lot more significant to me than replacing Mickey or Billy. Again, I love them. I think they're great. But you know, on those shows when Jay Lane stepped in, I don't know that too many people you know came away from it really being able to. Uh, notice any kind of a significant difference in what went down. Um, but e- even saying that, to me, there's just something about having Bill back there, you know, anchoring the drums when the dead are playing. And yes, Mickey too, I feel that way about him. Um, but Billy especially, I don't know. that I, you, you read the story. Billy especially. I, I agree. I mean, look, the, Mickey's not out there playing with a bunch of like young musicians like Billy does with Billy and the Kids. Right. Like Billy's... Billy's still, you know, out there playing music with all sorts of fun people. If Mickey's not playing with Grateful Dead, he's, you know, he's doing stuff on his own. He's doing like his world beat stuff, but he's not out there playing with other outfits. Right. Uh, Billy has, you know, Bill, Billy has never really stopped going and has always been, you know, uh, really accessible to other musicians. Uh, and as you said, you know, he, he was there from the beginning and remained there. Whereas Mickey, you know, like he's been there full time since what seventy five, but there was a period there where he kind of drifted in and out mm-hmm. from from seventy one to seventy five. Right. Uh, and I, I always think of you know Billy as a truly as a founding member of uh, of the Great the Warlocks. He, would, I mean, he was there when they started the Warlocks. I mean, he goes back as far as any of these guys, and and you know always had his own special relationship with Jerry. And you know, I, I it, it on the one hand, you know, it's always look it's their internal stuff. They've got to work it out. But on the other hand, just as somebody who follows the dead as closely as I do, and as we, you know, I'm sure as we, what happened, you're absolutely right. There's one tour left, you know, and, and here, check this out. This, I mean, this really cracks me up. Kreutzmann's going to be in new Orleans on the 27th of this month, playing with Billy and the kids, which I, I think may be the first weekend of jazz fest. And then dead and company are going to be there on May 6th. I mean, they're both going to be in this. They're all right. both going to be right there. They're all going to be playing music, and they're not doing it together. That that just that blows me away. Yeah, it's a tough pill to swallow. Uh, but at the same time, you never know what happens uh, behind closed doors. And right again, you know, never pretend to guess. But uh, nope. but you you would hope you would hope that with only you know a few shows left uh, at, at their age, they'd be able to say, okay, let's just you know stick it out for just a little longer. And, uh, and and then call it and say, okay, that it ended, you know, in, in a really positive way and not acrimoniously, and you know, that's uh, that's all you can hope for in any situation. So do we 
do we think now that uh, he shows up with Phil and friends as Phil's drummer, or you know, does he just go in a totally different direction? <laughs> I've switched teams. Right, right. <laughs> I've decided. I've decided I'm back with Phil. That's funny. I didn't even consider that, but yeah. uh, nor did I consider Joe Russo playing when Joe's got his own, you know, own gig going on. I think it's more likely you'd see Billy Billy join uh, Joe than than Joe join the uh, Dead and Company. Yeah, I suppose. But you know, I mean, look, that and and. Hey, I don't know what it is about this week, right? First, it's Tucker Carlson. Then it's Don Lemon. Now it's Bill Kreutzman. You know, I, I guess they say all this stuff comes in threes. So maybe this is it. But that's a lot to swallow in one week. Those are some big changes in the Those world. Those are some big changes. But, uh, you know, I, I support the first one. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. Well, it makes a big difference, I think, for everybody. And, you know, look, I, I don't want to delve into it too much, but it, it, it's almost impossible not to at least say, Thanks, Carl. You know, Tucker, it's been great. You know, don't let the door hit your ass on the way out and you do your thing from now on. And, you know, it's just, it's, uh, it's really fascinating to way this, to see the way these things work. One of the things we talked about last week was how disappointing, as a lawyer, how disappointing it was that that trial settled. I was really looking forward to seeing that case go to trial and seeing the rulings that were going to be made. And it really would be legal history in a lot of respects, breaking new ground. And I, I was just fascinated and, and missing that opportunity. Yeah, would I have loved to see? You knew it wasn't going to trial. Come on, man. You knew that was getting settled. There wasn't a chance in the world he was letting those guys go on the right. stand. I mean, like, you have to look at it objectively. $787 million was the cost of not putting Rupert Murdoch on the stand and not putting Tucker on the stand, not putting Handy and Pirro in those. Like when they sat back in the back office and they did the risk assessment, the cost of not putting those guys in the stand was $787 million, right? It's incredible. Nobody pays that kind of money unless they know they're really, you know, up a creek. But what's fascinating to me about this is that at the moment I thought, I get it. You know, as a lawyer, I certainly get it. But where, how are there going to be any ramifications from this if it gets settled and swept under the rug? And lo and behold, there's a ramification. I can't tell you if it's directly connected to that or not, but I don't care. You know, that to me, that's things going in the right direction. It's not just Tucker that's gone, Don. Dan Bongino is gone also, and Tucker's producer and a few others. I don't think we've seen the last of this yet either. I think there's more heads to roll. And, and quite honestly, uh, the Smartmatic uh, lawsuit, I think, is scarier. And, and even more scary is the producer at Fox who's, uh, who's suing Fox because I, I don't think she's going to get a huge payout. I think she's perfectly happy to see this thing go through. And I think she's perfectly happy to put people on the stand. So I, I don't think I don't think that we've seen the last of this story yet, uh, and I think that the Smartmatic one, you know, for a significantly larger dollar figure, is still looming. Last I checked, Fox only had four billion dollars in their balance sheet, and uh, you know now it's down to three point two. Uh, you know they're they're trying to renegotiate their cable rates right now with all the cable providers and looking for significantly more money per uh, per box. We'll see without the star power having Carlson there. You know, it, so so with, with, without delving too far into this. You know, we talked about the comparison to Kreutzmann. Look, I'm perfectly happy to watch Jay Lane step in because I go, okay, that's a you know nice innocuous replacement. I'm terrified he's going to replace Tucker. <laughs> you know, it's like, like like the devil, devil you know, buddy, devil you know, could be uh, could be Jesse Waters. Well, look, remember when Jay, when uh, Buchanan, Pat Buchanan, got run out finally? Not Buchanan. Who was it? Was it Buchanan? No, Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly. Right. And we all thought he was ho- such a horrible person. Choose your Irish name. Right. right. Bill O'Reilly gets run out. And the next thing you know, we got Tucker Carlson and it, it was worse. So I, I'm sure they've got somebody waiting in the wings, you know, who's going to step in and, and try. But, you know, in the meantime, it's it's tough to get to that position that he got to. And wait, wait, wait until you uh, know who Mike Levin is. <laughs> yes. 
it, it, it could certainly get worse. I have I have no yeah. doubt about that. Well, we'll, uh, we'll we'll move off of that. And hey, let's talk about uh, let's talk about more Bob Dylan and, um, and and more tunes that he played. And I think uh, you got another one queued up for us, which uh, I think is a classic Buddy Holly tune, if I'm not wrong. You're absolutely right, which we just talked about quite a bit, uh, I think, last week. Dan, go ahead and hit this one for us. better the music or the guy in the background screaming and just going wild you know when he recognizes that 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 uh that that dylan is playing it clearly an audience tape uh this is from april 15th at the again at the tokyo garden theater in in tokyo and uh just last week we were we were talking about uh not fade away and written by buddy holly and on the b side for oh boy when it was released and you know but the Grateful Dead played it live 566 times. Uh, I'm, you know, Buddy Holly didn't over even, 26 years, right? Buddy Holly didn't even play that many concerts, unfortunately. You know, before uh, Destiny got in the way of him and 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 that stuff. But I mean, yeah, from from 68, 69 to the very end, it was it was a staple in the Grateful Dead songbook. Um, and but interestingly, Dylan first covered the song back in '97. Um, and he played it through uh, early 99 uh, to commemorate Holly on the 40th anniversary of his death. He stopped playing the tune in 2002, and he brought it back for one night only in 2009 when he played in Lubbock, Texas, again, honoring Buddy Holly. And this performance in Japan is the first time he's covered it in over 14 years. So, yeah, I'd be excited, too. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a great point. And when, I, when you sent over the stats of how many times the Grateful Dead played it over the years, all I could think to myself is, I bet Holly didn't play it live more than 20 or 30 times. And you think about just like, I don't think there's a band that's played Not Fade Away more than the Grateful Dead did. And then Not Fade Away is one of those tunes that I don't think there's anyone out there that doesn't know the song. Uh, and there's tons of bands that have covered it, you know, and just, just the clap alone, just the beat of the, you know, the dun, 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 dun. It's such a recognizable rock and roll beat. Where I've got to think that, you know, the Grateful Dead have probably owned that song more than, more than anyone else, including the person that wrote it. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And look, you know, if I was somewhere and somebody started, you know, covering Not Fade Away, instinctively in my mind, I know Buddy Holly writes it, but I'm like, yeah, somebody's, get, you know, channeling the dead right now. And that's, I, I you know, to me, it was, it was always their song. It, I, I know they didn't write it. I, I get all of that. But, you know, the way they performed it, and, and I mean, it, it, it's hard to find the number of tunes you know, that have survived from the 1960s all the way through to the very end and, and were stayed on the menu the entire time. You know, this was not a song that they dropped for 10 years and came back and played. 
And I think the fact that, you know, Dylan was covering it already so long ago, you know, it's just an indication of the uh, of the way people feel about Buddy Holly and the significance of Buddy Holly and this particular song on rock and roll. Yeah, definitely one of the most influential songs they can rock and roll um, of anything ever written. So, you know, super cool and super cool to see Dylan bring it back in the repertoire, but not surprising, you know, not surprising. Like it's one of those songs that it doesn't matter who breaks it out. You're kind of like, yep, that, you know, I expect if you're a rock and roll band or, you know, Anyone in the last 40 years playing uh, pop music, Not Fade Away should be something that, you know, one time or another, you've probably covered in, in some band you've been in. No doubt. No doubt. You, you can't go and hear a rock and, you know, rock and roll on a regular basis and not hear it maybe multiple times from multiple artists. It's just that kind of a tune. And, you know, when Dylan plays it, it's kind of like, I, I think of it, you know, again, like, as, well, the master's reaching down to the common folks and, you know, playing one of their songs and, you know, great. I mean, the, you could hear the way they were playing it. They certainly had the energy. So God bless them. That's uh that's a wonderful thing, um, but now to roll into another one here. Uh, while we while we're while we're listening to this stuff, uh, we're going to have you play this. This is "Broke Down Palace" uh, from April fourteenth at the Tokyo Garden Theater, uh, and the, the the gig with this is uh, Dylan played it uh, three times in this tour. The first two times were aborted, in, including this one. He he didn't make it through the whole song, and finally uh, on the last night of the tour on April twentieth, he was playing at the Achi prefectural arts theater in nagoya japan and that night he did manage to to get it and all of these are posted on uh youtube if you want to go you know check them out and listen to them but uh this is from uh, april 14th still in tokyo a clip of that part of the song that he played before he switched out of it My biggest question about this, besides the fact that I actually really like this version of the song, you know, it's, it's kind of haunting and adds a whole other element to it that I think is great. He's getting applause. I don't imagine that there were too many Americans who made a point of going to Japan to tour with Dylan. So my question is, do the Japanese have that much of a depth of American rock and roll that they hear the song and they recognize he's covering the Grateful Dead? Or are they just happy to hear he's playing a song and they like the song? What do you think? I have no idea. I mean, Japan's a big country. There's, what, 180 million people in Japan <laughs> or thereabouts. Uh, I'd like to think that several yep. thousand of them in Tokyo probably have a, a pretty good sense of what Dylan's repertoire is. And, you know, like if there's anything I know about Japanese cultures, they dig into things and go super hard at them. And, uh, you know, that sort of sets you apart is what your passion is. So I've got to think there's people that know Dylan's uh, catalog better than any of us do. So, uh, and, and I would think that there's certainly some some pretty big Grateful Dead fans. And I, I know that other jam bands we know have certainly played in uh, in Japan. I know that, you know, Fish played Tokyo Rock a few times. And I think they built enough fans there that they could go back and play any time. There's people that probably know every word, every song they've played. So, yeah, I, I don't think he was playing a huge venue there. So do I think the people in that venue, um, 
you know, no Bob Dylan's catalog, I, I've got to expect that they do. Yep. I, I think that that's probably true. And, and I mean, really, that's the beauty of this, right? All of this music is not just American rock and roll or exclusive, you know, for Americans, but it's music that's taken on resonance all around the world. And, you know, I love watching music festivals sometimes from like countries in South America or, you know, countries, non-speak, non-English speaking countries in Europe. And you see all of these fans there singing along with every word of the song that's being played, you know, and that, look, I could listen, I could, you could play me a, a Japanese song over and over again, and maybe I could eventually pick up the lyrics or, or think I do and be able to sing it. But, you know, people, it, it, it's just amazing to me. And, um, you know, how great is it that, you know, Dylan's revered in Japan, you know, by a core of people much the same way he is here. And I'm, I'm assuming in other, you know, countries that have, uh, you know, what we would call sophistication for, uh, for rock and roll, but you know, it, it's great. And it, it, it's wonderful to hear him play this song and it's, it's wonderful to hear him interpret Jerry Garcia. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm, what I find amazing about this isn't just that it was not fade away and it isn't just that it was, you know, broke down palace. It isn't just the fact that it was, um, trucking. It's that he broke them all out on the same tour and just kind of like shocked everyone that, uh, I mean, I mean, there's certainly enough people in Japan that understood the significance of this because it made it over to the United States within like two hours of it happening. <laughs> like Dylan just covered, you know, this. So it's, uh, you know, there's certainly fans in the audience that like recognize the, the significance of all these covers. And I'm not sure, you know, kind of where, where Dylan's going with this, but yeah, I, I don't know whether it's, you know, towards the end of his career, he's giving it back to some other people he respects as, uh, as lyricists, but, uh, you know, arguably, Arguably, Dylan and Robert Hunter are two of two of the top ten of all time. You know, I'm not sure where you put them and, and rank them, but uh, but they're certainly right up there. But it's it's cool when when you see one give recognition to another. But you know that kind of comes back to that, I think the fourth clip we're going to look at, which is that it's not Hunter, it's Josh Ritter. You know, and and and, and Ritter you know wrote this tune with Weir, and you know the the reaction from Ritter when he heard that Dylan covered his uh, his song is that he was absolutely speechless. You know, so, you know, like, like, I can't imagine being like a member of like, you know, a, a relatively unknown band writing a song with Weir to start with, you know, which is already one of the life's greatest honors and then having Dylan cover it. And it's got to be one of those things if nothing else happens in your musical career for the rest of your life that you can walk away and say you got that. You know, I, I think that that's one that, you know, you can tell your great, great grandkids about, you know, like or, or your grandkids will tell their grandkids, you know, that your great, great, great grandfather wrote a song that Bob Weir covered and Bob Dylan then or Bob for Bob Weir and then Bob Dylan covered it. That's one of those things like, you know, it's that's like American folklore of music that, you know, that doesn't matter what Josh Ritter does from here on in kind of already won the game. I, I think you're right. The, the song is uh, only a river. It's from. Uh, Bobby's uh, Blue Mountain solo album he released a couple of years ago. Dan, go ahead and play that.
So, you know, the, the thought that I take away from this is I spent all my years as a deadhead watching Bob Weir interpret some of Dylan's most deepest tunes, right? Stuck inside a mobile with the Memphis Blues again, Queen Jane approximately, Desolation Row. Uh, Phil was doing Tom Stumb's Blues. Jerry was doing She Belongs to Me, Visions of Johanna. And that all makes sense, right? Dylan is this god of rock and roll fame, and these guys recognize it, and they love his music, and you know they want to go out, and they want to be part of it, and they play it. But how the hell does, I mean, Bob Weir, who's a huge rock and roll star in his own right, What's it like for him, right, that, that this guy whose tunes he's been interpreting forever is now turning the tables and interpreting one of his? It must just be amazing. Yeah, I would think so. Those guys have to be pretty good buddies over, you know, all the years they've played together and um, corresponded with one another. And so it's, it's got to be, uh, you know, I, I bet Weir, like anything else, takes his strides. Like, yeah, yeah, that's cool, man. As I said, I think for a Ritter, it's, uh, it's an even, even bigger deal. And you listen to that song, and you know if you were to say who wrote that song, I probably would guess it was Daniel Lenoy or, or John Prine. You know, it's got very much sort of like the, uh, the American or Canadian sort of honky tonk feel to it. But uh, but that's it's it's very much in in that style. Uh, but a, a very cool song, a very cool song. Like you always you always forget that your favorite musicians listen to everyone else's music but their own. You know, and as they think about what music they like, you know, like uh, who knows? Dylan could have been listening to Only River for the last you know four or five years. And just thinking, well, that's a great song, and someday I'd like to to add that to one of my shows. Yeah, and and you know, you 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 hit the nail on the head with Ritter. You know, he 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 uh, he said that he wrote this. I wrote the song in the stairwell of my dorm in college twenty five years ago. <laughs> Music is a blessed traveler to all my friends out there making art. It's not always this easy seeing the ripples of you. The ripples your work makes but take the story of my little song only a river as comfort art travels voices carry your art is out there in the world making its home in many places many hearts and he's right you know and, and you're right you know dylan listens to other people's music and uh you know he heard this and it really resonated with him and and he decided i mean you know dylan's got enough songs he could play concerts forever and not have repeats and the fact that he reaches out to josh ritter and bob weir is, is absolutely amazing and and couldn't be happier for them and couldn't be happier for the people who got to hear it. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, should we talk some weed? Yeah, let's talk some weed. There's all sorts of crazy stuff going on and uh, a few stories up front that unfortunately today fall on the negative side and then we'll we'll wrap it up with one that's a little more positive. But let's start it down in Louisiana. Louisiana has had a, a medical program um, and by all accounts, it's, it's actually done pretty well. In fact, uh, Good Day Farm, which is an Arkansas-based MSO on the largest marijuana producer in Louisiana, is doubling its production capacity this year amid strong patient demand and new regulations expanding access. So all of that sounds great up until you get to the point that now the uh, Republican-led House of Representatives in Louisiana has quashed an effort to legalize marijuana possession for those 18 and older to establish an adult-use retail market. Uh, apparently the House Criminal Justice Committee voted nine to four to oppose the House bill introduced by a Democrat. The bill was opposed by Louisiana sheriffs, district attorneys, and chiefs of police who contended passage would present a public safety issue and a danger to children. Where is Mason Tavert when we need him, right? This is unbelievable to me. They've got medical, so it's already out there. Who are we fooling? You know, if the kids want to be smoking marijuana, they're already smoking marijuana. Public safety issue is just the silliest thing. And yet 
they're going to push back. And this is the state that has the city, that has the street, Bourbon Street, where more crazy stuff goes on than anywhere else in the world. And this state is saying no to adult use marijuana. It it just blows my mind. I I can't even begin to understand what they're doing. Look, whenever you talk about something like that, and you just just very eloquently said, the reason I laughed in the middle of it, is whenever you say like there's a street like Bourbon Street or Beale Street or you know the strip in Vegas, and you go, you already have this. The answer from lawmakers is like, well, we don't want to add anything more to it than what we already have. You know, got to draw the line somewhere. We've already got the craziness, so you know, we should probably stop with that. And it's like, wait a second, like either either you guys are embracing the absurd or you're not. You know, and the fact you can have drinks between um, between venues and walk openly, getting as drunk as you want to be in the middle of Bourbon Street. And, you know, you, you, like public nudity, public everything else that goes on during Mardi Gras and all the rest of the stuff. Yet, you know, this is a bridge too far. <laughs> you know, it's, it doesn't make any sense. I would love to see what the crowd is like on Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras. If they were just smoking weed and not drinking. Yeah, I don't think Mardi Gras would be nearly as much fun. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be. I, I I don't disagree with that. But, I mean, in terms of talking about it being a public safety issue, right. you know, the police would probably be bored. This, this is no fun. It's too boring. You know, and, and but the point being that you can't sit there and say that marijuana is the cause of the any public safety issues they're having down there. You know, all this other stuff that they have does more than a good enough job for that. And, look. Every state's entitled to do what they want to do, but it just always still strikes me as just a little bit strange when you see a state that otherwise so openly embraces vices of every that's kind right. deciding to draw the line here. Yeah, that's right. And that's where it's like, you know, especially when, when this vice is significantly less harmful than the other. Uh, but it's, you know, it, again, it's all question what's woven into the fabric of that society. And in New Orleans, uh, alcohol is certainly very, very much a part of that society. And, and they're perfectly happy to, to keep that, but adding anything else, um, you know, God forbid. Oh, well, you know, I, I say go out to, um, you know, just like my little running with the fans at the salt shed, go out to jazz fest on any given night and take your best swing, take your best shot because it's happening and it's going to keep happening. And if you want to be stupid and avoid out and, 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 and miss the, the tax benefits that you could be receiving on all of it, that's your business, right? I mean, I, we can't tell them what to do and they certainly wouldn't listen to us. So, you know, Louisiana will figure it out someday. Everybody does. It's just a matter of time and, uh, and we'll see what they do. But one group that has apparently has not figured it out yet uh, is the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. And uh, <laughs> yeah. last summer, you know, we had Shakari Richardson uh, who tested positive for marijuana at the uh, 2021 Olympic trials disqualifying her first place finish. Yeah, now it's Tara Davis Woodhall. Now it's Tara Davis Woodhall. And uh, just unbelievable to me that uh, uh, she's a long jumper. And um, she'd been stripped of her indoor national title and suspended for one month because of her anti-doping rule violation. And so the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency announced this week uh, that, that she tested positive for THC, the main psychoactive compound found in marijuana, in a sample collected on February 17th after she won the long jump title at the 2023 U.S. Indoor Track and Field Championships in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Her suspension was reduced to one month because she successfully completed a substance abuse treatment program and her use of cannabis occurred out of competition. She served her suspension already. Let me make sure I understand something here. She used marijuana, not in competition. She used it on her own time. You know, she went to a one, you know, uh, a substance abuse 
program, whatever the hell that means for somebody who smokes marijuana. And the U.S. Olympic Committee decided they still needed to strip her of this title. And it's the same thing. Go into the Olympic Village. They're all drinking like fish and having sex with everybody. But marijuana, nope, we can't allow that. I think uh, Dr. Peter Grinspoon, who's a very vocal advocate of, uh, of cannabis, and summed up very nicely in a tweet today where he wrote, Disgusting. This persecution of cannabis users needs to stop immediately. Marijuana can't magically cause a motivational syndrome and be a performance enhancer. Let's drop the double standard. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. right. You know, you can't say, oh, these lazy weed users, you know, there's a stereotypical cannabis user who just lies around and plays video games in his parents' basement. And then also say, you know, oh, but cannabis is going to cause you to jump further. I mean, look, this, the, the long jumpers don't make money, right? They, they, they're they not part of a professional sports team. They're doing this for the love of whatever it is they do. That's true. Almost all track and field. They might get a couple endorsements here and there if they're, if they're really lucky, right? But, I mean, this isn't – you're not making a career out of long jumping and you're certainly not, um, uh, you know, this, getting all that much notoriety outside of, you know, maybe the NCAA championships. And if you're lucky enough in the Olympics, but that's about it. So, so why not, you know, allow these, uh, athletes, the, the, the glory of, of winning when you know, it's not a performance enhancing drug. It's ridiculous. No, it, it, it is very ridiculous. And I, I, and what do you say to somebody like this? Okay, fine. She should have known better. People can say that. But the truth of the matter is, given the fact that society as a day has totally embraced it, you know, why the hell does anybody even care anymore? And and I, I don't know. I just, that's, it, it's just so frustrating to me to see that all these other people are all out there using all other sorts of things. You know, I mean, the Russians and the East Germans for years were using performance enhancing drugs. And, you know, eventually they got caught and slapped around a little bit, but not probably nearly as much as they should have. And I, I don't know. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's just all crazy to me, the, the way that these people make these decisions and, and do carry a double standard and all in the name of we have to make this look good. So this is what we're going to do. And you just say all it does is make you look stupid, but it's, it's their game and their ball. And I guess if we don't play their way. So, you know, the, if you know the rules and you want to compete, you're just going to have to accept the fact that if you smoke marijuana, you're, you're running this risk every time out. Yeah, and it shouldn't be that way. But, you know, I suppose if you are a professional athlete or you know amateur athlete in this case, and you know the uh, the risk. You're accepting that risk. You know when you uh, when you use cannabis, as ridiculous as it is, uh, you know. Like I, I know even going back to you know the whole idea of signing contracts when you're a high school athlete. If you get caught drinking, you know you're off the team. You know what you're getting yourself into. Uh, so it's uh, in life you make choices, and I, I think this is an absolutely stupid one in terms of policy. But uh, but I also think that you know you can't say. You, that you didn't expect it after seeing other athletes have the same treatment last year. Absolutely correct. You know, the rules are rules. And in that respect, you know, if you know what the rules are and you violate them, you know, you're, you're subjecting yourself to, to that potential punishment, which is fine. And I get that, you know, my complaint is just based on the fact that why would anybody even deem this kind of conduct worthy of punishment? Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I think that much where we're 100% aligned on, on this. Uh, and it's an absolute tragedy. But, you know, speaking of tragedies in the cannabis industry, uh, it seems like our friends in the GOP have blocked uh, the bill to allow veterans to have access to um, veterans affairs studies to, to help, you know, people with, uh, that are veterans with whatever issues they have by, by studying cannabis. And again, it was, you know, consumers getting all the heat these days for bills not passing, but people forget that this is a unified voice coming from the GOP to, to vote against these bills. And it's, you know, for 
a party that claims to be pro-veteran, you'd certainly think that they'd uh, be supportive of a bill that's going to hopefully you know, find ways to better treat veterans uh, who need help. Yep. And what's interesting is we do have some Republican support here. Very little. Senator Dan Sullivan, a Republican from Arkansas, uh, supported this bill. Um, but I'll tell you who else supported this bill. Josh Hawley supported this bill. And, you know, to me, you know, that's amazing because there's very few senators who I think so personify, uh, you know, the craziness on the right-hand side of the political spectrum in this country right now. And yet here he is joining in on that bill uh, to support it, as did the other senator from Missouri, also Republican, Eric Schmidt. Now, you know, people think that's a little bit strange, but Missouri is a big, big military state. There's Whiteman Air Force Base, Fort Leonard Wood, um, uh, just to name two, which are, are, are the big ones, but they, they have all sorts of military stuff that goes on in Missouri. Uh, um, Boeing was there for a long time. It was a military contractor. And I, I think that, uh, you know, these guys are just playing the, you know, smart political game and understanding uh, that in Missouri, which just continues to blow Illinois out of the water with the amazing start they've had with their adult use program. Um, I, look, I'm no fan of Josh Hawley. In fact, I openly dislike Josh Hawley. Stop. But at least in this instance, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. Look, there's no better sight in all of politics than his pumped fist on the way in and scurrying down the hallway to get out of there on the way out after they all broke in and back on January 6th. But, hey, look, he's out here supporting this, uh, joining the likes of Lisa Murkowski, who always tends to be a little more cent centered as a, uh, a Republican, Susan Collins, of course, who may be good at a lot of things, just not evaluating the, the ver veracity of Supreme Court candidates. Um, uh, Mike Rounds, from a Republican from San Diego, so and then the two Missouri Republicans. So, you know, to me, that's a really good thing that they would stand up and do that. But but why would you do this, right? I mean, uh, John Tester from Montana, uh, who one of my favorites said, it's, today it's time to put political differences aside and do what's right for our veterans, adding that VA studies required under the bill could find that marijuana serves as an opioid alternative for veterans with chronic pain. Hell yes, that's exactly right. This isn't so complicated. Uh, they talk about it being controversial among GOP members, but we're to, what we're really talking about is making sure that veterans have a better understanding of the role that medicinal cannabis plays in treating the wounds of war. How do Republicans consistently tell us that they're the, they support the military, they're the military guys, but they're the ones who screw around with military benefits, who screw around with the VA and are screwing around with this? You know, how do any of these guys look at, go back to their states and look at their veterans and say, I have your back? We couldn't vote for that. It's marijuana. It's too controversial. 90% of Americans or whatever the current poll is, you know, saying that marijuana should be legal. 65 or 70 saying they've tried it once. This is beyond preposterous at this point that people continue to play this game and act like, well, you know, I'm not going to go touch that third rail. America has very strong feelings about it. Yeah, and its strong feelings are you guys are way behind the eight ball here and you better catch up fast. It would be great if there was political consequences for that. Yep, there doesn't seem to be. And it's unfortunate that everything has to be painted in the lens of, of being political. When it comes to cannabis policy, there's certainly no doubt that there's one party that's largely in favor and one party that's not. And, uh, you know, it makes it very, very difficult as a cannabis professional to, to not see that and, and to, to, you know, forgive that, I guess, if, if you know, you're, you make your living based on trying to advance cannabis legislation and trying to, uh, to make sure that, 
you can run a business that adheres to the letter of the law, but still has the federal government taking every dollar out of your pocket as you're doing it. Um, no, there's relief in sight, but there's no motivation on, on one side to provide it. Uh, it makes it very, very difficult to, to be sympathetic to a lot of the things that they do. So it's, you know, again, two or three, you know, kind of negative parts of, of what's happening in the industry, but we do have some positive, you know, there's a couple of things that are happening that, that are good to talk about. And I think we can at least start with Delaware passing a, an adult use law and uh, being with the 22nd state in the, yep. uh, the country to officially have done so. So, and, and correct me if I'm not wrong, but they did that over the potential veto by a democratic governor. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. We, we had talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, look, I, I, it just goes to show that you, you can never tell with politics one way or the other, especially when it comes to something like marijuana. Uh, but, you know, good for the legislature for stepping in and taking care of that and letting the good people of Delaware enjoy their weed. Yep. And, uh, you know, it'll take some time for that to, to get open and in the, the program, you know, actually uh, fully moving. Who knows? Anything could happen between now and then. We've certainly seen weirder things, you know, you could have change in, in composition there the way you did in Virginia. And you'd watch the, uh, the the whole thing get shelved again. But, you know, as of right now, you at least have uh, some hope here. And we're still waiting for other states to, to get their programs, you know, off the ground that have already passed it. But we're, we're getting closer and closer to, you know, sort of the magic 26 number, which is, you know, more than half the, the states in terms of numbers, not in terms of population, but in terms of numbers of states. So, you know, I, I think the industry has been hopeful for a long time that there'll be something that is, is the, quote, tipping point. And we would have thought it would have been when, you know, more than 50% of the U.S. had access to adult use cannabis in terms of population. But we blew past that several years ago. You know, it's not even close to this point. Now it's, okay, can we get to 50 plus states? And can we get to 50 plus states that include a handful of very conservative states? And uh, we're, we're getting getting really close. Uh, you know, I think Texas has shown us there's, there's still a chance there as well. Well, exactly right. I was a good segue that the Texas House has given initial approval to a marijuana decriminalization bill, setting it up for final passage in the main chamber of the of the Texas legislature. Um, this is just unbelievable to me, again, in a positive way. Now, I know Texas is, you know, although they tend to be a very right uh, red state, you know, they have a little bit of that. Um, spirit of adventure in them, if you know, if you will, they, libertarianism is what the word I was desperately grasping there for, for a minute. But, you know, I mean, they enjoy their vices down in Texas just as much as the next guy. They also enjoy their law and order. And quite frankly, with, with Abbott being the governor, uh, it's kind of hard to tell the difference. And we'll, we'll get to that here. Uh, Representative Joe Moody uh, has, has passed this and said, he's, I'm very proud to bring you a bill that will lower taxes, improve economic opportunities for Texans, strengthen the ability of law enforcement to respond to serious crimes. And, and the House bill does that by changing the way we enforce the laws around the personal use possession of cannabis, which is exactly, you know, the way things should be going. Now, they, they point out it's still going to be illegal, but what they're doing is addressing a smarter way to handle it than we do now. What this will do is freed up hundreds of millions of dollars that currently go into enforcement, keep police on the street working more serious cases instead of processing these petty arrests, and make sure those who currently end up with a record that interferes with jobs, schools, housing, and licensure come out of the process without any uh, permanent stigma. Now, here's the thing. This is great. But it, it comes a month after the House Criminal Jurisprudence Committee uh, unanimously passed the measure, which removed the risk for low-level possession. The House had already passed a similar cannabis decriminalization proposal during the past two legislative sessions in 2021 and 2019. But so far, the proposals have consistently stalled in the Senate amid opposition from 
Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, Republican, who presides over the chamber. Let's remember who Dan Patrick is. He's the guy who first said that we had to keep America going for our children. And if that meant that senior citizens would get COVID and die, but save it for our children, he said, sign me up for that. And to which I said, I wish he would have been able to carry out that goal that he wanted to do. That would have been a wonderful thing. Uh, but but he's, he's, you know, Abbott's lackey, and he consistently, time and time again, uh, comes up with these positions that are uh, comically ridiculous in terms of how far uh, he, he tries to push the envelope. Don't forget, he's also the one, I think, who offered a $1 million reward for anyone uh, who could show proof that uh, that 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 uh, the elections were legit or whatever? And some guy in Pennsylvania actually uh, came forward and said, "Hey, I'm a Republican and I worked here, and I can tell you that it was legit, and I want to collect." And you know, uh, Patrick had a bunch of reasons why we can't do that. Patrick doesn't like anybody. He doesn't like transsexual people. He doesn't like gay people. He clearly doesn't like marijuana. And you know, this is the as, as, what I would do is to s- separate this out from a standard legislature filled with uh, Republicans, not excluding, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, right? But but otherwise, it, I, I think a lot of Republicans tend to be very open about this, but you get these obstinate, he's as much of a fucking canoeing joint as Mitch McConnell is, you know, just these guys who just get in the way just for the sake of getting in the way and just on whatever crazy principles uh, they think dictate their life. But thank God uh, if the, uh, if the, Texas legislature can get around him and uh, and make that happen. How do you really feel, Larry? Sorry, man. I don't like this guy. And if he's going to step up and get in the way of something like this, nearly three in four Texas voters, 72%, support decriminalizing marijuana. More than 55% said they're in favor of broader legalization. And only 17% said it shouldn't be legal at all. And guess who Dan Patrick's uh, cozying up with? Unsurprising to me at all. If you know anything about the guy... This is exactly the position you'd expect him to take. Yeah, that's uh, right. It, but it's just you know enough to make you want to pound your fists on the table and scream, which I'm doing very effectively. Thank you for letting me have my rant. But uh, wow, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it, you rant away. I mean, there's nothing you're saying I disagree with. I mean, look, then, then we get started on the uh, Attorney General of Texas, and you know, there's there's a oh Ken Paxton. <laughs> yeah, Paxton's even you know madder than a hatter. So, you know, so the only attorneys general that are that are out there that is under indictment right now and still continues to be the, the lead law enforcement agent for his state. It's nuts to me. But, hey, that's that's Texas. And then, and, 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 you know, California, we're the ones with the crazies. Uh, so, you know, you, you never know how it's perceived. But look, uh, more good news in Canvas, you know, so let, let's hope Texas goes through. But as of, you know, in the last hour, the safe has been reintroduced again. Uh, so. We'll see. You know, I know we were going to touch on this today and, you know, my reaction, if, you know, someone's going to go on a rant and maybe, maybe it's my turn now, but look, this thing's been introduced so many times. It never passes. Everyone gets their hopes up. This is like, you know, it looks safe to me. Might as well be the football and, uh, and, and Congress might as well be Lucy, right? You know, every single time, every single time, you know, they, 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 they keep falling for it. And at a certain point, you know, shame on me. Right. And so it's, uh, it, it, safe. If safe had never been introduced at all, I would venture to say that I think Canvas stocks would be doing much, much better than they are, because every single time the safe, you know, um, is introduced and passed in Congress, you watch, you know, the the share prices of, of Canvas companies go up by 10, 15 percent. But then when it doesn't pass, ultimately they drop by a significantly greater portion. So it's 
And every time it's because people feel like they've been uh, they've been hoodwinked again. So seven times this thing's been passed in Congress. Seven times. Got to 59 votes last time. So you can't put it through reconciliation on a uh, on a 51-vote basis. We don't have the votes for it. We haven't had the votes for it. But, oh, this time it's different. Safe eight. You know, like th- this time there's something that's changed. And I think as of right now, it's been introduced by um, – by uh, a handful of people, including some Republicans, Steve Dane, Senator out of Montana, is you know one of the sponsors of the bill. Uh, another another you know, Republican. So this time it's like, oh, well, it's being introduced on a bipartisan, bicameral basis. Okay, yeah, great. It doesn't have the votes. It doesn't have the votes. So what are we wasting our time for? I will not get excited until there, there's a guaranteed sixty votes in the Senate. When I know for sure there's sixty senators that will vote for this thing, then I'll get excited about being introduced in the House. Until then, I could care less. Well, you know what? And you're right. That is a good rant. And that, that, that's, that is a great way to, you know, to go back and, and, and to wrap it up like that, because it's true. You know, they can, they can pay lip service to it all they want, but if they're not willing to give it, you know, a reasonable uh, vote and, 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 you know, pass it on its merits rather than, you know, worrying about party lines or any of these other things, um, you know, then it needs to get done. And, and you know, we all know how important it is. They know how important it is, um, but they, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to help us. It's not passing. No, it's not. <laughs> Let's be realistic. No. It's not going through. It's not. Um, we got another clip. We're going to jump back to uh, just to, to our good buddy, Bob Dylan. This time we're, we're out of Japan, but since we're, we're touching on Bob Dylan here, I felt like we had to go back and catch some of his other uh, performances. So uh, here's one coming to you from December 16th, 1995 from the electric factory in Philadelphia. <laughs> I love Alabama Getaway. That that's just one of my all-time favorite Grateful Dead songs. It, it just really jams. It's great. Here's Dylan playing it. This version of it is just a mere six months after Jerry's death, and uh, you know I was reading the comments uh, under the um, under its link on on the internet, and somebody writes Bob Dylan's live interpretation of the Grateful Dead's Alabama Getaway by Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter. Bob channels his inner Jerry here. You can tell he's digging it. And to me, that's just a, a very apt description, right? I mean, clearly he's digging it. And and the first thing I notice when the right when this jam starts, Rob, is how upbeat it is. You know, I mean, even not fade away, which was more upbeat than say broke down palace or uh, or trucking. But this, you know, the, they're really cranking away now. Again, this is twenty eight years what, ago. This is almost <laughs> yeah, yeah, twenty eight <laughs> years ago when when Dylan was still cranking it out a little bit, but nevertheless, it's, it's just wonderful to hear. Yeah, he is so much older than he's younger than that. now. Ah, 
Nicely said. Nicely said. So that's always fun. So that yeah, Dylan just making his way through the world. Let me ask you about this really fast. I don't know if uh, uh, with your travels and everything else that's been going on, if you had a chance to check out uh, this most recent West Coast fish run, the two shows in Seattle where they played Isabella one night because, yeah, we knew it was some guy, some local guy named Jimmy. You know, and then they did their three shows at the Greek Theater. I had uh, some friends. Uh, one of my cousins was there. Uh, my good buddy Kevin was there. And uh, they had never even been to the Greek Theater, you know, so it's like, oh, my God, how amazing is this to see a show at the Greek Theater, to get to see fish there and get to see fish. What does the Greek hold? 5,000 maybe? Where else can you go see fish in a, in a venue that small except maybe the Hollywood Bowl where they then went for the final three nights? And uh, I've been listen- I was listening to him on Fish Radio. Jonathan Schwartz always plays the concert live the next day. He plays it the next day on his show. And um, – I, I would, you know, middle of the day, just be sitting out in my car listening to some of this because the the the, the this first night I think it was at um, uh, the Greek Theater they had a four song second set with a forty five or fifty minute tweezer, and as I was mentioning last week, my son gave you a shout out on that because a few weeks ago you had just been talking about the ninety seven shows where you said they jam so much sometimes you'd see a set and they'd only play four or five songs. And lo and behold, here they did it. So, uh, you know, to me, that's just, that's that's great stuff. I, I, I love that jamming. And then this past weekend or two weekends ago, I saw Goose here in town. And the same thing, right? Some guys who just took this music and just ran, just run with it, it you know, in a way that's, that doesn't, doesn't bore you, doesn't, you know, make you feel like I don't know this music. I mean, like a band like Umphreys, who I like, sometimes in the middle of their jams, it started to get a little heavy for me. You know, these guys just keep building to crescendo after crescendo. And, uh, you know, it, it makes me feel good about the future of jam band rock and roll. Yeah, for sure. And then, look, I, I was hoping to have uh, gone up to see one or two of those shows at the um, at the Hollywood Bowl. Unfortunately, I had other family stuff that I had to deal with. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I've listened to a fair amount of both the, the Berkeley shows and the, uh, the Hollywood Bowl shows. And I'll tell you, it's really, really nice when, when you do get a, a really monster tweezer in set two of the first night, and then they don't play the tweezer reprise until the encore two nights later, right. which is a you know, right. a great way to uh, a, a great way to do it. And uh, you know, there's there some stuff at Hollywood Bowl that was uh, that was pretty exceptional as well. If you've listened to any of those shows, uh, the drift while you're sleeping encore on the first night was just fantastic. Um, you know, if if you're a fan of the song, I, I happen to be. I love that tune uh, from Ghosts in the Forest. Uh, but, you know, having um, uh, one of the nights was basically like straight out of like 1992 as far as what the set list was. I think it was the um, I think it was set two of the second night with the Chalk Dust, the Twist, the 2001, or the, the first set with the David Bowie, the Esther, the Harry Hood, the, the Split Open and Melt. I mean, all old tunes in one set list, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. So those guys are playing really, really well. It's great to see. And it uh, stinks to have them in my home in my home state not be able to see the many of the nights they played, but uh, hopefully that will change this summer. Yeah. You know, um, they're not coming around here this summer. Unfortunately, they're not coming through Chicago. At least they haven't announced anything yet. So, um, you know, now it, it, it makes me, uh, you know, look to Labor Day weekend and wonder if after threatening to do so all these years, I might actually go to Dick's. Yeah, I think you should. And uh, if I can figure out a way to pull it off, I might meet you there. I'm a, I keep saying that Dick's every year. I keep saying about Dick's every year, and I keep saying Jam uh, Jazz Fest every year too. And here's another year. Uh, jazz Fest is about to start, and uh, I will not be going again. So uh, maybe I should stop teasing myself, thinking these things are possible. Right. Well, and and Goose, man, they're they're going to be like the the, the kings of Jazz Fest. They're playing 
I think the first weekend, and then they're sticking around and playing what they've now formally dubbed the days between, which I guess the Garcia state can talk to them about if they want. But, uh, you know, they're, they're going to keep the party going all week down there, and Goose is going to be a big part of it. Yeah, that's great. I mean, the, And Billy and the kids. Yep. I mean, all all great bands to be playing at Jazz Fest. Uh, you know, again, if you look back at, you know, Fish's history at Jazz Fest, they've certainly been no stranger to up to that festival either. So it's a lot of a lot of good stuff that happens there. And if it, anyone that's listening, if you haven't been to Jazz Fest, there's no place I could recommend more to go check out than uh, than the, the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival that happens every year for two weekends. Not because of what happens inside the festival grounds, but because of what happens in the evenings afterwards. And it truly is you know, one of the most fun times you can have anywhere seeing any music. And if you if you're into New Orleans funk and uh, and, and New Orleans kind of sound. Every musician you can think of is there, and they're all playing together and all sort of jumping back and forth with each other. It is uh, it's one of life's great treats uh, to be able to go down there to to see the Jazz and Heritage Festival. Absolutely, could not agree more. Um, so yeah, man, this is great. You know, an hour flies by. It's always more fun when I have you on the show, and we can uh, people don't just have to listen to me drone on for a little while. But uh, no, this was good stuff today. Um, uh, we've got uh, some more good stuff coming up over the next few weeks, uh, some big shows coming up that we're going to want to feature, uh, other guests that we're working on. Uh, Stu Salo last week was a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to be looking for his book when it gets published, and uh, I, I believe that uh, Dan Humiston is going to be meeting up with Stu next spring uh, to catch a little of his baseball action too. So uh, at, at least he says he is. We'll see what happens. Um, in the meantime, uh, Rob, great to have you back today, man. Always a pleasure, and um, have a great week. Right back at you, Larry. It's good to be back, and good to be back on the show, and uh, looking forward to doing a, a few more here and there. That would be wonderful. Anytime you want, we're always happy to have you. On the way out the door, we're going to stick with our Bob Dylan interpreting the Grateful Dead today, and uh, one of my all-time favorite Dead songs, one of my all-time favorite Jerry songs. Uh, nice cover of Friend of the Devil from the Fox Theater in Oakland, California. Uh, recorded last summer. So we'll, we'll leave you with this. Everyone uh, have a great week. Enjoy yourselves and uh, enjoy your, uh, your cannabis responsibly. Thanks, folks. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi and I'm the founder and host of Cannachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.